We hope you enjoy this message and that it encourages and inspires you. For more information, head to lifepointwithanee.org.au. Well, good morning to those of you here and good morning to those of you online. It's great to be with you. If you don't realise, there's probably uh, over 100 people watching online today with you. So it's great to have you with us in our last week of the prayer series. And I've got a confession to make. There have been many times where I have felt less than worthy to come to God in prayer, let alone ask Him for anything. It's like I've weighed up that whole Santa Claus, naughty or nice scales. And it seems that the scales have tipped more to the naughty end than to the nice. And for me, it just seems arrogant to think that I can talk to God, let alone asking for things that I need. Then I came across two prayers written by David, two songs, two Psalms, Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. And they're written when David is not yet king. Saul is still king. And to understand the power behind these two prayers, it's important to understand the backstory of how David got to write them. The heading of Psalm 56 says this, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. And the heading of Psalm 34 says of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and left. It's the same season of David's life, but different prayers, different songs. And these two prayers are at the end point of the story when he wrote these Psalms. So let me go back to the beginning of the story to fill in the gap. First Samuel gives us the background. David's a shepherd boy, a young man, goes up to the front line to take his brothers their little lunch. Lo and behold, there's no warrior willing to take on Goliath of the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. David thinks you don't need a sword to take on Goliath when you've got God on your side. I'll use my five little stones. And lo and behold, David takes on Goliath and takes him out. And from that moment, David goes from obscurity to military hero. The women sing a song. Saul has slain thousands, David his ten thousands. The popularity of David surpasses Saul, makes King Saul very jealous. Saul begins to sing David as his rival and eventually Saul comes up with an idea that he's gonna take David out. This is where David begins to make life decisions and choices that you wouldn't expect from a future king of Israel. Saul sets up an assassination plot. David finds out. So he's lowered out the window of his house by his wife, the daughter of Saul. And then deceivingly, he asks her to take an idol, put it in the bed and cover it over so it looks like he's still asleep. Gives him more time to escape but he was also supposed to attend a feast at Saul's table. So he asks his best mate, Jonathan, Saul's son, to tell his father that he's gone to Bethlehem to catch this, worship, to do a sacrifice for God. This is the man who is utterly dependent on God with his five little stones to take out Goliath. 
He's not looking so brave now, is he? He ended up arriving at a city called Nob. And the priest came to David and says, "Uh, what are you doing here? Well, David's on a roll, so he lied again. And he says, well, King Saul's commissioned me to take out a really urgent task. And I'm rendezvousing with a bunch of men here to do it. Talk about a Pinocchio moment. And while he was at it, David asked for provisions and a weapon. This is a nice little twist. The priest gives David some consecrated bread out of the temple, which he shouldn't have had in the first place. And then he gives him Goliath's sword that David took in the first place. This is the Goliath Slayer. Not looking so good. But you know how things just snowball. The consequences of David's deception is about to get real. Along with 84 other priests, Amalek, the high priest, was executed at Saul's command. And still feeling a little bit paranoid, King Saul also took out all men, women, children and cattle of the city of Nob. Later on, David confesses to the priest's only survivor of the city that he felt morally responsible for the death of all those people. This is where it gets even more interesting. After a few other altercations and deceptions, David flees to Gath, the Philistine city, Goliath's clan, Israel's enemy. He's hoping that if he remains in enemy territory, Saul won't come looking for him. In fact, David's even willing to take out a deal with the Philistines that he will fight with them against Israel. The future King of Israel fights against Israel. Well, unfortunately, his reputation goes before him. The King of Gath discovers, puts him into prison. Well, David was thinking he was gonna live his days out in prison, so he pretended to be insane. He dribbled down his beard, he scratched marks on the doors and the walls, and the king not wanting someone who's insane in his prison, he sent David away. Finally, saved. Saved by who? A good question. Who saved David? Was it the lying and conniving of David? Was it his quick thinking and deceitful heart that saved David? When things go right in your life, who do you think made it happen? Even when you're deceitful and conniving and controlling and faithless and full of pride and arrogance, who made it happen? You? Who got you the job? Who gave your physicians and specialists wisdom? Who provided the pay packet? Who made the unexplainable happen? Who healed the rift? Who sorted out the problem? 
Who helped you get the score, win the race, make the basket, get the grade? At a point of reflection, as David looks over the events of this season of his life, he prays in Psalm 56, a different perspective. And he says this, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long, remember he's in prison, all day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long and in their pride, many are attacking me. And then he has the penny drop moment. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in You. In God whose Word I praise, in God I trust, I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? If I had to rephrase his prayer, his song in modern day language, I'd say something like this. God, I got it wrong. I'm so sorry. I thought if I had Goliath's sword and I lied and I cheated, I could get myself to where I wanted to be. I could save my own hide and set the course of my own destiny. But I now realise after all this, that You are the one that makes things happen. You are the one that protects. You are the one that defends. You are the one that orchestrates. You are the one that has my future in your hands. And then he gets to verse 12 of his song, of his prayer, and he says this, I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling. It's all you. I've been so crummy, such a woeful choice of a future King, so lacking in trust and faith in You, yet You still orchestrate my safety. It's like this prayer is that moment, as I mentioned, where the penny drops, where hindsight and reflection are the catalyst to a prayer of repentance and true understanding of what really just played out over the last season of his life. And I've had a few prayers like that lately for me as the penny has dropped. The last three years for me, it might without a doubt have been the most difficult years. And for any of you who have been through a separation, especially when it involves kids, it's hard. It's stretching and challenging in ways I never thought I would have to navigate. And so many times control is out of your hands. Oh, but you'd love it to be in your hands. Moments where I fretted and said the wrong thing, acted without think or consideration, didn't consult God on the journey. And then the penny drops. Regardless of how I have behaved 
or fallen short of the expectations of God or myself, God has still acted in my best interests. He still saved me. Moment after moment after moment, seen or unseen, noticed or unseen, God has been good to me regardless of me. And through your David season, that's where your prayer should start. I'm just so sorry. That prayer, that moment deals with shame. You know, shame is such a powerful driver for us away from Shame tells us we can't come into His presence, that He doesn't want us to move toward Him, that He's repelled by our behaviour, that we've got to stay away. And that's what Satan wants. That's what Satan wanted for David as he was there in prison. Stay away from God, you've done too much. You can't move into His presence. You can't talk to Him. But a moment with God, a prayer of acknowledgement that you're way off course, deals with shame and it gets it off the table so that you can boldly move into the presence of God. That's the prayer of Psalm 56. But then it moves on to the prayer of Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His Name together. David removes from repentance to praise. Now that may not seem like a really big deal, but it's a massive deal. When you're able to move from repentance to praise is a huge thing. Part of verse 34, verse one, he says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. David isn't moving into this marathon length praise session where he doesn't stop for 24 hours. That's not it. What David chooses to do is a heart tweak. He makes a change in his life that regardless of the season he hits and the circumstances he finds, he is going to remind himself that God is in control and not him. And there's always something in your present that you can praise Him about. Regardless of how deep the valley is, there He is in the midst. There He is in the background doing something whispering something, tweaking something, changing something, moving someone, changing you, moving you. At all times, there is something I can praise God for. Then in the second part in verse two, he says, I will glory in the Lord. He's decided not to focus on the events or the circumstances again, but squarely focus on the one who controls them. He's deliverer, not on the things that steal his peace, but the thing that gives him peace. Not on the things that stress him, but the one who brings clarity. I'm gonna focus on him, not all the peripheral stuff. And then the second part of verse two and verse three he says, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glory the Lord with me. Let us exalt His Name together. There is so much impact when together in community, we share the stories of how God has moved. We remind each other that He's bigger than our circumstances. 
we remind each other that He ultimately rescues and saves. We remind each other that He's there in the midst of our mess. And I love what David writes at the end of Psalm 22. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. What's He say? He has done it. Whatever it is, He has done it. Not you as much as you would like to think you did it. Not me as much as I'd like to think that I navigated well. You breathe because He has done it. You're in relationships where you are because He has done it. You thrive because He has done it. Your good health because He has done it. Your job because He has done it. Your peace because He has done it. Your support network because He has done it. There is nothing that you have because without Him. He has done it. And the the groundswell of faith and trust that rises when people declare He has done it. When story after story start to unfold of what He has done, you encourage and inspire others to believe that it's true, that He has done it. That's what this series about prayer has been all about, is reminding us that we place our faith in the One who does it. And it's He we go before the throne of and ask Him to do it. We beseech Him and we cry out to Him and we persistently ask Him, will you do it? He has done it. So there's a prayer text, praise text just up there. And online, Beck's your host. Uh, We're gonna sing a little bit of a song. We stand with Mel and sing some song. The goodness of God. And during this, I'd encourage you to text through or to put into the chat, what has He done? Because then Phil and Lloyd at the end are gonna come and speak them out over us. If you want into a little secret, every single one of us, every single one of us has a He has done it moment. We should be here till lunchtime, reading them out. I just wanna encourage you not, not to think that it's someone else's story, it's your story. Your He has done it moment is powerful. No matter what it was, it is powerful. And you can inspire and encourage the rest of us that we follow a God who does it.